A reading from the book of Lamentations in the first chapter. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her and have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. She lives now among the nations and finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young girls grieve, and her lot is bitter. Her foes have become the masters. Her enemies prosper, because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From daughter Zion has departed all her majesty. Her princes have become like stags that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I invite you to be seated. When I was in youth group growing up, we had a new youth pastor, and he decided to do a special project. Now, this project has stuck with me for the last 20 years, all right, and and so this is just fair warning, this was a super clever idea and it might show up in the future. So what he did is he had a big stack of lined paper and he invited us to come forward and grab as many pages as, as we thought we might need. And then he gave us 10 minutes and we all went to our, our individual seats and it was a closed book exam. You went to your seats and you had to write from memory all of the Bible verses that you knew. You didn't have to write down the citations if you didn't know the chapter and the verse. That was okay. But write down from memory as many of the verses as you could remember. And then he collected them together and he you know, gave, gave an instruction. So the leaders went off and sort of compiled them together and we created a Bible from memory. The idea was, of course, that you know, if all of the Bibles disappeared, we would be able to reconstruct the, you know, the, the, the Bible from, you know, pop culture references and, and things that exist in our culture, but also the things that we knew, uh, you know, and of course the study was about hiding God's word in our hearts. <coughs> what was interesting is the, the Bible that we created, okay? So there was, there was the Ten Commandments, as you would expect, um, although I think two of them got switched and one got left off, so it was like the, the, the nine and three quarters commandments. Uh, and then there was the Beatitudes, and then there were lots of quotations from Jesus, a handful of quotations from Paul, a few scattered verses here and there, a couple of prophets, you know, some, some stuff from Genesis. And then he got very confused. And he said, so we had, we had a, couple of, a couple of quotations from Proverbs, and then we had this chunk of verses from Ecclesiastes. <laughs> so when I was a teenager, I got way into Ecclesiastes. 
That's, that's my, my explanation for that. I got way into Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes does not pull any punches. If you haven't read Ecclesiastes, your assignment this week is to go and just read Ecclesiastes. Now, be forewarned, Ecclesiastes is not a happy book. It starts off with the author saying, everything is vanity. Now, that word that we in our Bibles normally translate vanity is more like the word vapor, okay? Some translations will say a wind or a mist or a fog. It's not that kind of vapor. What he's saying is everything is everything is just everywhere you look, that's all that that is. Over there, that guy's rich. That guy's poor. That guy's stupid. That guy's smart. That's what he says. This entire book is just him saying everything that you see around you falls apart and it doesn't matter. Now this is a weird book for us because we're not used to reading things like that in the Bible, okay? Because a lot of us, if, if you are, are like me, just didn't read those passages. That wasn't a part of our normal Bible study. When I was growing up, it, it certainly wasn't for most of us. We didn't read those things. So I want you to go read those things, okay? They're important. Because when I was a teenager, I found that book to be really refreshing. I found it to be really encouraging. This is a person who can ask hard questions, who can say honest things about the world around him, and then not get criticized for it. Not be handed some, you know, throwaway book that was written by, you know, some sort of pop preacher that is going to answer all of your hard questions and never does. So we read this morning twice from the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is like that. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Lamentations and Ecclesiastes, along with Ruth and Song of Songs and Esther, are all part of a section of the Bible called the Writings. What's unique about the Writings, the word they use is the Keduvim, but what, what's unique about this collection of Writings is that in the Writings, God doesn't talk. The Writings are just about God's people talking to God, or telling stories about God, or crying out to God. But God is not a character in those stories. Now, can we read those stories and find where God is at work? Absolutely. But that's not the purpose of those stories. The stories in the Song of Songs, the stories in Ruth and Esther, are about God's people living life. The same thing is true in Lamentations. The same thing is true in Ecclesiastes. Now, we call this book Lamentations, and that comes from an assumption that the church made a long time ago that these were the words of Jeremiah. So they took this, this book out of its context and they stuck it at the end of Jeremiah. And they said, these were the Lamentations of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah crying out. But that's not who wrote this. Jeremiah didn't write this. In fact, there were lots of people that wrote this. So in the Hebrew Bible, the book is not called Lamentations. The book is called Echo, which means how. The book is just called How. Now, there's not like a, a mystical reason for that. Most of the Hebrew Bible is named for the first word in the book. Okay, so gen the, the book that we call Genesis is just called In the Beginning. It's just this, the, the word in the beginning. So this book is the very first verse. We read the very first verse today. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. How like a widow she has become. This is the book of how. And that how question is what the authors of, of the book of Lamentations ask over and over and over again. How? How? How did this happen? How did we get here? How do we get out of this? How? 
Now, I mentioned that there are several authors, and what is beautiful about this book is that not only are there several authors, but these authors are from all different places. Okay, We know this because the book is a collection of five poems. There's five chapters, and each chapter in the book is a different poem. Each poem is written by a different person because the language and the way that they use the language is different from one to the next. But here's what's fascinating about the book. The first two chapters talk in the first person, and they use the feminine and in all of their pronouns. The first two poems in this book are written by women. The next poem is written by a man. The next two poems are people who are describing eyewitness accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem. These are poems of mourning. It's a collection of funeral poems written by people who are mourning the death of Jerusalem. So the first chapter, the chapter that we read from today, is the story of a widow who's sitting there alone in these ruins, and she's crying out to God. She cries out to God. But there's not an answer. And if you've been at a place in your life where you have cried out to God and not heard an answer, you know how devastating that silence is. These poems in Lamentations are laments. We tuck it away in the word, but it's a word that we don't really understand, especially in our culture. We don't, we don't lament. That's not a thing that, that we do. Other cultures lament. It has been you know, a, a practice in, in other cultures, other societies. Uh, but that's not something that we understand. It's not something that we practice in, in the world that, that we live in. Okay, Because a lament is designed to give voice to our grief and to give voice to our sorrow, to give voice to our pain and to give voice to our rage. And in our culture, we, don't, we are not allowed to give voice to those things. We're not allowed to be sorrowful or, or grieving. We're not allowed to be, to, to, to be filled with wrath or with pain. We run away from pain. We whitewash bad feelings. And if we can't whitewash them, then we medicate them so they go away. But that's not the way that Scripture handles those emotions. In fact, if you were to sit down and read the book of Psalms, first off, it will take you a long time. (laughs) Severals of hours to sit and just read through the Psalms. But in our prayer cycle as Anglicans, we have the option of reading through the entire book of Psalms once a month. That's doable. That, That takes about five or seven minutes a day, uh, split up in the morning and the evening. You can read through the whole book of Psalms. And as you read through them, you'll see that these Psalms all fall into different categories because these are hymns. If you look in our hymnal, there are, there's, there's little letters up at the top of each page that tell you what style of hymn this is. This is a hymn about Jesus and his death and resurrection. This is a hymn about faith and trust. They tell you what those are. And so the Psalms are like that. All of the psalms fit into these different categories. But did you know that 52 of the psalms are psalms of lament? Both individual lament and corporate lament. Sometimes it's people who are crying out to God, saying, God, save me from my distress. And sometimes it's God's entire fellowship singing these songs. These are the hymns that they sang. There are more psalms of lament than any other type of psalm in the Bible. 
Because God's people knew how to lament. Lament means holding on to the hard truths about the world and about ourselves. Lament means that we take time to name loss, that we take time to name injustice, that we take time to name anxiety in ourselves and in our culture and in our communities. And then lament breaks the patterns of denial and complacency and silence that our culture uses to keep those things in the dark. And once we have named loss and pain, once we have broken those patterns of denial and silence, it creates space for you and I to allow God to hear the hurt that is right now roaring inside of our hearts. Every single one of us sitting here today has hard questions that are bubbling up inside of us. They look different from one person to the next. Maybe for you, they sound like how. Maybe for you, they sound like what. Maybe for you, they sound like who. Often for me, they sound like why. Why is there sickness? Why do some people get healed and other people don't? Why do innocent people suffer? Why are my neighbors starving? Why does God look different in the Old Testament than he does in the New Testament? Why don't we see miracles? Why don't we see justice? Why? Hard questions that bubble up inside of our hearts and lament create space for us to let go of those things, to release those things. Because lament doesn't just end with you and I giving voice to hurt and sorrow, okay? Lament begins with complaint, but if we stop there, the only thing that happens is that we're just complaining, okay? And complaining is just you and I talking to each other about our faithlessness. That's all that complaining is. Complaining doesn't get us anywhere. But lament begins with complaint. And then it moves to an expectation. It moves to invite God to intervene. We ask God to be true to who he says that he is. There is injustice. God, you said that you bring justice on the earth. And then lament rests. Lament enters into quietness. Not inaction. I don't want us to hear it that way. Not pessimism. Rest. Because in rest, there is There's expectation. However bleak it looks on the horizon, lament ends in expectation that God is who he said he was and that he does what he said he will do. Lament begins and says, the world is this way. And then it says, but you, God. And then it rests and is quiet. For me, that's the power of the way that we celebrate the church year. 
the cycle of walking alongside the whole of Scripture. We never read Lamentations. We never read Ecclesiastes. We never read Song of Songs. We didn't listen to the whole story of Scripture. All of the ways that Scripture cries out, all of the human experience, all of the things that are in me and in you are there, contained in that, because it is a record of God's people's encounter with God himself. Not fake people, but real people like you and like me. And so in our church year, we walk through that same cycle. We have these these major, major highs and these really, really low lows. Sometimes we're in ordinary time like we are now, and it's just kind of, you know, we just kind of glide through everything right now. But we're going to be celebrating All Saints and All Souls Day in a few weeks. We're going to remember that Christ destroyed death by death and granted life to those who are in the tomb. But we're going to recognize that death is still a part of us. It's still a part of our community. And we wait for God to step in. We wait for God to intervene. We wait for God to prove that he is the God that he said he was. We head into Christmas and we rejoice. But before Christmas, we sit in Advent in quietness and stillness, waiting and hoping that there will be another Advent, a new Advent, when Christ will reveal his kingdom once and for all. And then we head into Lent. And Lent brings us toward that bright sadness that we experience on Good Friday. Those of you that have been here during the day on Good Friday have read these passages from Lamentations. This is something that we do each year on Good Friday. We read and sing the Lamentations together. The thought of my afflictions and my homelessness, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. We sit there in the ruins on Good Friday. We give voice to the pain and the anguish in creation. And we give voice to the pain and the anguish that Christ utters from the cross. Christ becomes a widow crying out over a ruined city right there in our midst. But something else happens on Good Friday. God reveals something to us about his own heart. Because not only do we enact lament together on Good Friday, but when we gather together Good Friday in the evening, we hear God sing God's lament to our hearts Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me. There's hope on the other side of that. But you and I have to get to a place in a lament where we face the wrongness that is here, the wrongness that is around us, and we can trust and we can hope and we can release. That's the power of the liturgy. 
It reveals this deeper truth that when we cry out and lament that God himself is crying out in our humanity in lament, that God himself cries out against the wrong that we experience in the world around us, that God's own heart roars the same way that my heart roars. And we hang all of that on this insane hope that all things one day will be made new. I'm going to close this morning with a quote from David Hart. This is from his book, The Doors of the Sea. We've got it in the library. I recommend it to everybody. Hart says, until that final glory, however, the world remains divided between two kingdoms where light and darkness, life and death grow up together and await the harvest. In such a world, our portion is charity. Our sustenance is faith, and it'll be so until the end of days. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but I see the face of an enemy. And then we are able to rejoice. Not that God will unite history's many strands into one great synthesis, but that at the end of days, he will judge much of history false and damnable. That he will not reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but he will strike off all of the fetters in which creation languishes. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a child in the dark are necessary for the building up of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up and wipe away every tear from her eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And he who sits on the throne will say, Behold, I have made all things new. Those are Christ's words to us in the midst of our lament, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our hurt. There's this insane hope that God is who he said he is and that God does what he said he will do. That one day all things will be made new. That's the hope that we cling to. That's the hope that we proclaim. That's the hope that we manifest every time we walk out those doors and show our neighbors what Christ's love looks like. When we go into our homes and show each other what Christ's love looks like. When we go into our workplaces and show people what Christ's love looks like. Where Christ is present with his people, his love is manifest, and his love makes all things new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.